Before I get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, I feel as though I have some explaining to do. When I started this podcast, I released it with the intention of putting out an episode every two weeks. Shortly after making that declaration, I regretted it. Not because I don't want to do this, but because I want to do it correctly. Without being able to dedicate my full time to the podcast with work, I do have a full time job, with a majority of the time it being way more than full time, and life in general just constantly getting in the way. I felt that if I forced episodes to meet that two week self imposed deadline, that my stories wouldn't be true to me and what I'm trying to do. There are podcasters who live and die by the mindset that you have to be consistent with releasing episodes, otherwise, nobody will want to stick around and listen to your podcast. Personally, I believe in quality over quantity, and I think I proved that you are all the exception to the rule. I am truly humbled by the support that this show has gotten me over the last year. Your messages, kind words, and reviews mean the world to me, so please, keep them coming. I've also been delayed because I finally decided to sit down and write my novel. So, if there are any book editors or publishing houses out there listening, feel free to give the kid a call. I have mentioned in the past my absolute love of theme parks. Thrill rides, dark rides, roller coasters, I really can't get enough. My wife and I even spent part of our honeymoon in Disney World. It was my second visit, and since the first took place when I was too little to remember, I count it as actually the first. It was during that trip that really sparked my love of theme parks, and the one ride in particular that did it was the Haunted Mansion. Even though it's old and considered one of the classics, I couldn't believe the amount of detail and story packed into that 9-minute ride. For those of you unfamiliar with the ride, your time is spent sitting in a slow-moving cart called a Doom Buggy. As you make your way through the mansion, ending in the attic, before you head down to the grounds for a musical tour of the graveyard, and in the end, with a trio of hitchhiking ghosts latching on and following you home. It's during the climax in the mansion before you escape to the graveyard that you meet the bride. Constance Hatchaway, better known as the Black Widow Bride, is one of the ghostly characters in the Haunted Mansion, which appears in Disneyland in California and in Walt Disney World in Florida. She is arguably the most villainous and dangerous presence in all of Disney World, being the ghost of a bride with a murderous past life. The original attic area featured black lights and blast-up ghosts that would occasionally spring out and scare visitors. The bride would be swaying in the corner with a beating red heart seen within her. In May of 2006, the show scene was redesigned to include new effects and introduce a darker storyline. This included scattered and stacked wedding gifts along with portraits of the redesigned bride and her husbands. However, in each portrait, the husband's head would disappear and the bride's voice would admit to beheading them. The doom buggy would then head for the window where the bride would be standing reciting her wedding vows with a hatchet materializing and vanishing from her hands. The doom buggy goes out the window to the graveyard, implying escaping from the ghost. While her full backstory purposely remains a mystery, like most Lady in White stories, many details are revealed in the attic scene. Constance Hatchaway was a beautiful woman who sought to obtain wealth and luxury. She accomplished this by marrying several rich men, including bankers, businessmen, farmers, and barons. However, each was murdered after the wedding by the deadly bride, decapitated with a hatchet so that she can claim their inheritance. Despite her crimes, she was never punished, though the public did dub her the Black Widow Bride. It was her final husband, a one Mr. Hightower, who was one of the many owners of the titular mansion. After murdering Hightower, Constance decided that she was satisfied with her wealth that she had accumulated and settled down in her newly inherited mansion. She died later of unknown causes, 
though most speculated it was of old age. After her death, Constance's spirit became enveloped by her sadistic homicidal side. She became a permanent resident of the mansion's attic, standing among her hordes of past wedding gifts and admitting her crimes. Arguably, Constance is the most famous of all the bride or lady in white stories, and boy, there are a lot. I can almost guarantee that if you Google your hometown with Lady in White, you're certain to come up with one. Maybe even two. These are some of my favorites. Newark, New Jersey. Branch Brook Park is famous for being home to the most beautiful cherry blossom trees. Every spring, people come by the busload to take pictures of the more than 2,000 blossoms that span this 360-acre garden. But at night, there is a different reason why this park gets visitors. People trying to catch a glimpse of the Lady in White. Several stories surround Branch Brook Park's Lady in White. The first is that she and her new husband were on their way back to the park to have wedding photos taken when their limo hit a patch of ice and skidded into a tree, killing the bride instantly. A variation from that story says that in 1976, a bride and groom were on their way home from their wedding reception, and the chauffeur decided to take them through Branch Brook Park. He lost control of the car on a sharp turn, and the car slammed into a tree. The bride was killed, but the groom and chauffeur survived. Weeks after the crash, two other crashes took place at the same location, at the same tree. Another popular story is that the lady in white was on her way to the prom with a date, and they decided to cut through the park. He lost control of his car in the heavy rain and hit the same tree. The impact killed the girl, but her date escaped with minor cuts. Regardless of the discrepancies, each story says that the lady in white lingers near the tree that caused her death. Some feel that she is warning drivers of the dangerous curve in the road. Others think that she's waiting for her date to come back and pick her up. Harlan County, Kentucky those who grew up in Harlan County probably remember the ever popular ghost story, the Highway 38 ghost, often referred to as the Lady in White. The local legend has no shortage of sightings, and the era of city buses along with taxi drivers transporting travelers from Harlan to the Everett area seems to be when the accounts and tales of this apparition, a lady wearing a white gown, began to circulate through the communities of Harlan County. The Lady in White is said to appear in the vehicles of her unsuspecting victims, who are nearly always male. She has been spotted on the side of Highway 38, and to the horror of drivers and passengers, many times can be seen sitting in the back seat of the car shortly thereafter. The earliest tales of this ghostly woman were brought to us by the VTC drivers and taxicab drivers who say their vehicles were empty when suddenly the forlorn woman appeared in their rearview mirror. Through the years, after more residents of the area began to own their own cars, the sightings of the apparition began occurring frequently in those privately owned vehicles. The decades from around 1950 to present day are filled with credible witnesses, including law enforcement officers claiming they encountered the phantom woman on the entire stretch of highway, with most encounters occurring between communities of Coxton and Verda. The sightings and ghost stories began in the mid-1940s and continue today, with numerous accounts of ghostly experiences on the haunted Highway 38. One must ask themselves, who is this woman? Some say she is the ghost of a local 20-year-old woman who was killed by her husband with an axe in nearby Verda. Regardless of who she was, the locals are 100% sure of who she is. The Lady in White of Highway 38. Cape May, New Jersey. She was my anchor. An overwhelming urge to just run away 
sounds like something everyone experiences once in a while. But for me, it was so much more. Sometimes it showed itself raging and fierce, clawing mercilessly to unbind the hastily tied chains I had thrown around this figurative monster. When I felt overwhelmed and overwrought in the mists of a manic panic attack. During those moments, it was her that eased the chains around me, that shut off the beast in the wounded condition, that tucked it away temporarily. At other times, the urge enveloped me in gradual daunting thoughts, took the form of miserableness I despised so passionately. And sometimes, it was just there, nestled within me, that tethered me to this indefinite reality, this loathful existence I like to criticize on every passing minute, this fearful existence in which I lay mired. Sarah was a Latina with dark brown curly hair. The tips of her hair were a bit lighter than the rest of it, more like a red shade. She had a curvy yet sleek body with hazel brown eyes which complemented her skin color perfectly. She was so confident, and I admired her for that. She had a perfect height, and her gait added to her perfect body. Her dressing style made her even prettier, and everyone used to be jealous of her. Besides her looks, she was humble and polite. She was caring. Most of all, she was straightforward, saying no to what is wrong and yes to what is right. I adored her qualities, her personality, as well as her looks. She was beautiful inside and out. She was fierce yet tame. The moment I met her, I knew she was the one. In those two years of being together, I always thought of wanting to be with her forever. I wanted her to be my wife, my partner. I wanted to die with her by my side. I proposed to Sarah, and as expected, she agreed. The wedding was intimate. Both of us did not have many family members. Well, in my case, I didn't have a single family member. My parents left me at an orphanage when I was six months old. And then I just skipped from one foster home to another until I was 18. So it was very small, just some friends. There was a beach house on the shore. It was perfect. We could hear the seagulls as the water would hit the rocks on the shoreline. The beach house had a front garden an open space where the wedding took place. It was decorated with white lilies and white and golden fabrics of all different kinds. A small gazebo was set up where both of us said our vows. It was beautiful. The most beautiful wedding that I've ever seen. Of course, I may be a bit biased. I did not want anything else from life. Sarah wore a long white dress. It had silver flowers embroidered on it. It was backless and had a belt on the waist. The sleeves were full and had frill on the end. She wore a pearl necklace that went perfectly with her dress. She chose not to take a veil because it gave her the feeling of grief. She wanted nothing but to be happy on the day of her wedding. I wore a black three-piece suit with a lavender shirt. I had my hair gelled at the back and was looking no less than a prince. I was her Prince Charming, and she was my Cinderella. Well, no. I was her Isaac, and she was my Sarah. We were so happy. We said our vows and got married. It was the happiest day of my life. But what I didn't know was that this happiness was not going to last long. After our marriage, we planned our honeymoon. Because of the shortage of money, since we belonged to a very middle-class background, our honeymoon was not extravagant. We booked an Airbnb on the outskirts of Cape May, New Jersey. It was about four and a half hours from New Haven, Connecticut, 
where we were from. We fell in love with Cape May when we passed through on our way to Ocean City, Maryland on vacation one summer, and just knew that we had to come back. Its small town vibes and scenic beauty is what sealed it for us. The weather and the sky there was breathtaking. Sarah looked for different places there where we could stay, and the places which were in our budget. We also decided to go in early fall to save a little extra money. Something I found out during my internet searches was called Local Summer, a time when the tourists go home and the beaches belong to the year-round residents. This particular year, the weather was something of a gamble. There were talks all week leading up to our trip that the first hurricane of the year was already forming, and there was a 50-50 shot of it hitting the New Jersey coastline. And as luck would have it, the rain and the wind really began to pick up when we were about an hour from our destination. It was when a tree came down behind us and the transformer blew, was when we decided that we need to get off the road and into shelter. Scouring the internet for any place close, Sarah found a location on Apple Maps about three miles from where we currently were. Zooming into the little icon on the map that signifies lodging, the name finally popped up. Trent Motel. There was no booking information on the website, just a crudely designed webpage with stock images of beaches and hiking trails. Due to the storm, we were desperate for shelter. We wanted just somehow to get somewhere safe. The roadway leading up to the lodging, which was off the main highway, was overgrown, and I'm shocked I didn't miss it. At one point, the growth made the roadway so narrow that I didn't think we'd fit. The overhanging trees, combined with the torrential rain and wind, was adding to our anxiety because at any moment, one of those trees could end up right on top of us. Once we arrived and laid our eyes on it, the place was actually a house. A really huge house, but a house nonetheless. The house looked like an old church. Just by looking at it, the way it was built, the rocky walls, the pillars, the pointy wrought iron fences, they didn't make them like that anymore. We were just happy to find something, and without much inspection, we grabbed whatever bags were within reach, and we prepared to head inside. We parked the car, and there was no one outside and no visible activity through the windows. No staff, no visitor. No cars even. The only car in the small parking lot was ours, but like I said, local summer. We didn't give it much attention, as all we were thinking at this moment was to get inside. The inside of this place was very strange. It did not seem like a place where people visited often. There was a sign hanging over the front door that read Trent Motel. Inside, there was an old woman behind the front desk. The wrinkles were covering all over her skin. The gray and white hair was so shiny and so bright, and she had blue eyes, one of which had started turning gray. We could tell she was old. Very old. Hello. Can we uh, get a room for the night? A room for two? I said politely. She did not say a word. Instead, she just nodded and turned her back to the wall where several keys were dangling off hooks under numbered plaques. She grabbed the one that sat under the plaque that read 202 and handed it to me. She pointed toward the staircase behind us. Uh, thank you very much, I said to the old woman. She just stared back at me, stared through me. Um, by the way, I asked, is there a restaurant or maybe even room service we can order? She slowly raised her liver-spotted hand and pointed over my shoulder toward the stairs again. We took the hint. We made our way up the creaky stairs and onto the second floor. The hallway was dark with wallpaper chipping off. The lights were dim, very dim, and the smell of moss was overpowering the other smells, and I was thankful for that. We used the key to open room 202, which was the one right next to the staircase. 
and this room was old. Huge windows that went from floor to ceiling. The sheets smelled so bad, and there was something that looked like mold growing off the carpet in the corner. Going back downstairs to complain to the old lady to get a new room was a big nope. She wasn't helpful at all. As far as other staff, well, I'm sure there weren't any. This place didn't look like it had much business during the season, never mind when it was over. That we were sure of. It was 10 after 8 at night when we finally got to the room and got settled. We took some clothes that we didn't really care about and draped them over the two chairs in the room. That's where we decided we would sleep tonight. Laying in that bed was out of the question. But now we needed food. Eating anything from this place was also out of the question, even if they did have a restaurant. And the storm outside made delivery impossible. Sarah still had some packs of nuts in her bag, and I grabbed a family-sized bag of peanut M&Ms and half a tub of cheese balls in it. The perfect road trip snacks, thank you very much. What a great start to our honeymoon, I groaned. Easy, honey. Let's find fun and adventure in these little things, Sarah said while sitting on my lap and stroking my hair. She was always the sensible one, the positive one. Her laughter was the kind that lit up any place that she was in. People loved her. I loved her. I gave Sarah a kiss and told her I'd take a walk to go see if I can find a vending machine to get us a couple of bottles of water. Once I left the room and stepped into the hallway, I felt a presence. As soon as I started walking, it felt as someone was following me. As I turned around, I saw someone going from one room to another in the hallway on the other side of the stairs. It was a shadow, and it was definitely not the old woman's. The shadow was broad. It felt like a man's. Someone who was tall, built, had broad shoulders. I was confused. I was sure there was no one in the place. I found a vending machine, got some orders, and ran back to the room. I told Sarah what happened, to which she replied that there may be other people. Maybe someone else got caught in the storm. We began snacking. We were in the middle of having an M&M fight when we heard a knock on the window. It was from the outside, but it was nearly impossible as there was no edge outside the window, and we were on the second floor. Maybe it was a tree branch and the wind was pushing it against the window pane. The knock came again. A pronounced rap of knuckles that couldn't be mistaken for a tree branch. We were petrified. The icy tendrils of fear that started to crawl up my spine, and I admit that I was afraid. Of everything that had passed, of everything that had yet to come. I went towards the curtains and behind them was nothing. Just the noise of rainwater falling on the glass window. Were we paranoid? Maybe. But again, could you blame us? This place looked haunted. Sarah did not believe in such stuff. But she started to when we found something on the bed. After the knock at the window turned out to be nothing, we turned to head back to the table and chairs. There was a stain in the shape of a hand that was not there when we first got to the room. Hell, it wasn't there 30 seconds ago. It was red. A handprint made from what looked like blood on the white sheets of the bed. Sarah screamed and pulled away from the table. She came and hugged me. I could feel her shaking, and to be honest, I was too. I was scared to the core. All we wanted to do was run away from that place. We decided that we would take our chances out in the hurricane. Why it took so long to come to that decision, I can't tell you. Why I didn't just continue driving will haunt me for the rest of my life. Sarah and I had our hands tangled together as we walked down the stairs toward the desk in the lobby. There was no one there. We called out to the old woman, to anyone, to give them the courtesy to let them know we were leaving. But no one answered. To hell with the niceties. We had to go. 
we had enough of the creeps for one day. We turned from the desk to make our way out to the car, and oddly enough, there was no door. There was just a big stone wall instead of the main entrance. How is this possible? We spun around to look in all directions. Did we somehow get turned around? Or was this not the front desk? Did we go down a different flight of stairs? It was just too much to handle now. We were sure now that this place was not normal. We ran in the other direction to find an exit. Now, this is when my memory starts getting a little fuzzy, but we stumbled into a storage room somehow. The room was dusty and had stuff piled in it from floor to ceiling. Sarah and I started to look around and maybe there was a way to get out from there. A window or something we can climb out of. There was a trunk under a window in the back room. So we made our way in that direction. Once we got within arm's distance of the trunk, it sprung open and sitting inside was a dusty yellowing wedding dress, along with a photo in a frame. There was the picture of a couple. The man was handsome and he was wearing a military dress uniform and the girl, gorgeous, standing there with her long black curls and her beautiful wedding dress, smiling from ear to ear. Her eyes, even in black and white, you could tell they weren't the same color. Is this the woman from the front desk? When I looked up from the photo and into my wife's eyes, I remembered our wedding day from a few weeks ago. The way she looked in her dress and her smile. That same glowing grin from ear to ear. A warm feeling began to wash over me. There was a man standing behind her. I caught a glimpse of him over her left shoulder, standing in the doorway next to the storage room, wearing his military dress. It was exactly like the photo, except that the uniform was red with blood and there was an axe embedded in his chest. Half of his head was cut off and it was dangling at the neck. Sarah saw my expression change and went to look in the direction I was staring, but I grabbed her face and told her to look at me. The man was slowly making his way towards us now. We both bolted around the shelving unit that was packed with boxes to try to cut around the man and make our way out of the door we came into. Once we were out, I picked up my phone to call the police, but as expected, there were no signals. The storm must have taken the towers down. We had no help at all. It was two in the morning now. All the doors leading to the other rooms were locked, and no matter how hard we kicked them, none would open. We frantically began pacing the halls, trying anything we could think of to get out of this building. As we walked past hallways and corridors, the lights flickered, and we could hear the sound of mice eating the wires from behind the walls. This building seemed to be getting bigger the more we walked around. The only thing easing the tension was that we were together. There was a mirror at the end of one of the hallways, and as we moved closer to it, we saw our reflections. But adding to the bizarre nature of this evening, our reflections in the mirror were still, not moving at all. And that's when I saw the man again, walking in the mirror up behind Sarah. By the time I turned around, he was pulling her into the room behind us and slamming the door behind them. I charged at this door, slamming my entire body into it. I kept pounding at the door, but it didn't do anything. It didn't budge. My cries became louder, and so did Sarah's. I can't tell you how much time has passed because I truly don't know. My body was aching and my hands were bleeding from the pounding and punching I was doing to the door. When I looked down at my dripping bloody hands is when I saw the axe, leaning against the wall. It looked like it fell out of one of those emergency fireboxes that are posted on walls in hotels sometimes. I picked it up, but before I could bring the axe to the door, it slowly shushed open. And there she was. I saw Sarah's body on the ground, coated in blood. There was so much blood. 
I thought my eyes were deceiving me. Flashbacks of all my previous trauma started bursting and opening my mind before I knew it. I couldn't hold it in anymore and let out a heart-wrenching scream. I moved towards her body, her face reflecting excruciating pain and hopelessness. A plea for help dead on her tongue. My heart in her hands. And she was... gone. It teased and clawed at me mercilessly, brewing inside and then raging out like an unkempt beast. It leaked out to my eyes. Tears did not hold back. I brushed her hair back from her face and flinched at her ice-cold skin. For all the warmth she admitted out to this world, this was far from what she deserved. She was my reprieve, my rock, the coolness of my eyes when I thought that my trauma would tear me apart from the seams. My mouth was parted in shock, my eyes reflecting inexorable pain as a sob viciously raked through my body. No one to hear me now. No one to help. As my heart bled in agony, I almost felt as if it would give up, stop beating entirely. But I inched a trembling hand closer to my side to steady myself. I noticed my vision blurring, dark spots intervening the sight of Sarah lying lifeless in front of me. The sun came up shortly after, and light entered the room. All the windows and doors just unlocked. I picked her up and started walking towards the entrance and out through the door that wasn't there earlier. My legs felt paralyzed, as if I could not walk. Every step I took was heavy. I got outside and called the police. The storm was long gone now. As soon as I turned around, I saw a small boarded up cottage, not the massive structure we first entered. I was standing there holding my wife's dead body in my hands, looking at a totally different view. A passerby came running towards me and asked what happened. I was in shock. When the police came, I narrated the whole story to them. And that brings me here. It's been almost 10 years since I lost my wife. Life hasn't been the same without her. Thank you, Isaac. Telling that story had to be difficult. You may go. In the case of Mr. Isaac Winters, patient still exhibits advanced delusions about the brutal murder of his wife. Story has not changed since his last interview. Patient is determined a danger to himself and others and is not ready to return to general society. Terms of conditional release denied. Signed, Dr. Alan Platt. Trent Institute for the Mentally Burdened. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod.
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 